Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, as Nick mentioned, today will be our final fully online liturgy uh, before we take a pause and test out our hybrid in-person format in August. Uh, and this liturgy pause, like you said, over the next three weeks, uh, will provide some much needed rest for our staff, our leadership team, our tech team. Uh, some of you are aware last fall, uh, two of our pastors resigned unexpectedly uh, without a transition plan in place. And our part-time administrator also transitioned off. So you know, we're half the staff we were. Um, and we greatly appreciate your patience as we've been planning what reopening looks like. Uh, and we're grateful for those who have been participating uh, just during this uh, challenging season for our community. And as we've been online this past year, uh, we're, we've been so grateful for uh, just to be able to hear voices and our friends from outside of Austin, uh, which allows us to continue having diverse voices in our homilies. And, you know, this past year, we've had the privilege to hear from Jeff Chu, uh, who's currently in Michigan. And we're, we've greatly appreciated his voice and his presence with our community. And so we're honored and delighted uh, that he will be opening the scriptures with us this morning. So welcome back. Jeff. Thanks, Waylon. Hello, Vox friends. It's good to be with you again. I hope at least some of you had our breakfast taco this morning. I really miss breakfast tacos, and I hope that next time I get to be with you, it'll be in person, uh, both because it would be so wonderful to share space together again, and also because it would mean I would get to have breakfast tacos in Austin. Um, as Waylon said, this has been a season of change. Uh, for so many of us, it's been a season of disorientation and of uncertainty in so many ways. Uh, in the world, we're struggling through this ongoing pandemic. Families have been divided by politics, by convictions about vaccination, by fears and doubts. Uh, in your own life together, you're seeking a new pastor to join you. And that's a transition that's never easy. And each of your own lives might bring sp something specific layered on top of these uh, other complicated situations. And some days, it honestly might feel as if it's just a bit too much. So what then? Where's the good news? Some days it might feel as if the odds are stacked against you. Little things seem to go wrong and sometimes bigger things too. What might be... A minor annoyance on its own becomes amplified as the minor annoyances pile up into major frustration. Some days it might feel as if your world is collapsing and whatever order you had tried to maintain seems to crumble to dust. Uh, it might be a devastating diagnosis or the loss of a job or a personal betrayal or the death of a loved one. Some days it might feel as if all the powers of the universe have somehow lined up against you. And what then? Where's the good news? These are the kinds of questions that sprang to mind as I was working through our passage for today. It's a strange story. It's a macabre story. And yet maybe an instructive one. I always think it's not a bad thing to hear scripture more than once as we delve into it. So I want to read this story for us again because it is a strange one. This is from the sixth chapter of Mark's gospel beginning at verse 14. So listen again for what God might be saying to God's people today through the reading of these ancient words. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. 
Some were saying John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said it's Elijah, and others said it is a prophet like, the one, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias, some texts, by the way, say the daughter of Herodias, which makes a little more sense. When his daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? She replied, the head of John the baptizer. Immediately, she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for his guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Friends, as I said, this is a strange story and a macabre one. And to be clear, I did not pick it. I'm, not, I'm weird, but I'm not that weird. Um, this is the lectionary gospel reading for this Sunday. So we're joining many other churches around the country and around the world in exploring this text. And I think there is something potentially valuable in wrestling with scripture that makes us uncomfortable. In this text in particular, there's mystery, there is maneuvering, there's cunning, there's a power play, there's grief, and there's death. But where's the good news? When we encounter the events unfolding in the royal court, it's a time there of disorientation and confusion. Everyone's trying to make sense of a new man on the scene, a guy named Jesus who is performing otherworldly miracles. And everyone also has a theory as to who Jesus really is. Some say he's Elijah. Some claim he's a new prophet, just like the ones they've read about on the ancient scrolls. And Herod has a theory too. It's John the Baptist, come back from the dead to haunt him. And then we get a little bit of backstory as to what happened. Herod had beheaded John at the request of his daughter, who was acting on the orders of his wife, who also happened to have been the wife of his half-brother until she violated the customs of the time and divorced that half-brother to marry Herod. And that half-brother also happened to be the wife's half-uncle, which means that Herod was also his own wife's half-uncle, which means the daughter in the story was not only his daughter, but also his half-grandniece. And actually, the annals of history tell us that the daughter in this story was actually probably his stepdaughter, which means she was also his niece. Did you get all that? It doesn't matter, 
All we need to know is that things were super messy, stranger than fiction, a family drama that would seem too dramatic even for the tawdriest of today's TV. John the Baptist had had the audacity to tell Herod that this whole familial arrangement was not okay. Something that Herod really should have heard from someone within the family, especially given that his own grandfather had been, ready for another wrinkle, a high priest in the temple. So Herodias held a grudge against this wild prophet, this bold man who had dared to name the situation for what it was. Who was he, a man known for being almost like a desert beast, dressing in the skins of wild animals and eating honey and locusts, to be judging her? She had been born a princess. She had married her way into becoming queen. She had power, and John did not. Honestly, all this makes both my head and my heart hurt. Where is the good news? You might fairly ask why Mark included this story in his gospel. Maybe Mark was indulging himself a moment of complicated humanity. Um, These were human storytellers, after all, picking and choosing details to advance a narrative. And readers in his time and day would have known all the messy details of this messy family. I'm also tempted to imagine that maybe he was thinking, can you believe these people? I'm tempted to imagine that maybe his early readers were thinking, and I thought my family was complicated, but at least we're not the Herods. But even if that's one of the side effects of a passage like this one, I don't think the Bible was ever meant to be a prequel to The Real Housewives or a Near Eastern Game of Thrones. And that kind of comparative gawking isn't really, I don't think, a biblical value. Probably the better answer is that the story serves as foreshadowing. We see from the earliest days of Jesus's ministry that involvement with him can have tremendous consequences, political consequences, life-shattering consequences, consequences that ripple even into the highest quarters of power. It's a signal of the magnitude of what Jesus has come to do and a sign of the enormity of who Jesus is. The message that Jesus brings, the way of life that Jesus proclaims, the wisdom and goodness that Jesus embodies, these things meet tremendous opposition among those who hold worldly power, among those whose choices and whose character are indicted by them, among those who seem to have something to lose if Jesus gains. And they know this. They might even kill to stop it. I also think Mark might be using this story to humanize Herod for us. We have to wrestle not with a flat, one-dimensional figure of a totalitarian authority or opposition or evil, but with someone who seems to know a little bit about right from wrong, holy from profane. Who among us hasn't felt both awe at good and temptation toward evil, both the stirrings of something honorable as well as the urges toward something destructive? To be human is to wrestle internally in these ways. And Herod recognizes something in John the Baptist. He knew, the text tells us, that John was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. And I love this little detail that comes next. When Herod heard John talk, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. Look at how holy mystery finds a way to pierce the heart of someone as notorious as Herod. Witness how faithful testimony can stir even the soul of a renowned baddie. 
But of course, it's not enough to save John the Baptist's life. So where is the good news? I'm going to pause for a moment here to pull back the curtain on sermon writing, at least my version of sermon writing, and at least my experience of writing this sermon. I got to this place in the sermon, and I had nothing left for you. I read the text, and then I read it again, and then I read it again, and then I read it again, and then I had to walk away from it for a while, and I went to the community garden, and I did some weeding, and I watched some Wimbledon with my husband, and then I came back to the text, and I read it again, and I read it again, and I kept asking, where is the good news? Here's what I finally settled on. I think there's good news in the very first sentence of the passage, for Jesus' name had become known. But I think its goodness might be opaque until we widen our lens, pull back our perspective, and remember that testimony in the light of some other parts of Scripture. Maybe it's too much to expect each little section of Scripture to summon us to the fullness of the gospel's grace and love. Maybe sometimes we have to sit with it for a while and let its words and its weird stories ricochet around in our minds and in our hearts, such that they ping off of a nugget that we've held on to, a bit that we remember. The good news that I found this week is hinted at in that clause in that first sentence, for Jesus's name had become known. But we can't know the richness and the depth and the breadth and the gravity of it just from this story, just as the characters in this story had no idea about the significance and the depth and the breadth and the magnitude of what they were dealing with. The good news for us that's tucked into that clause, for Jesus's name had become known, can also be elaborated on, for Jesus's name is still becoming known. Jesus's name and Jesus's heart and Jesus's witness and Jesus's salvific work and Jesus's love became known in the time of the disciples, but they're still becoming known in our world today and indeed in the hearts of each of us. And isn't that the work that we still have to do? To know it a little more intimately every day and to testify to it a little more boldly every day to experience the love of God a little more profoundly every day, and to radiate the love of God a little more courageously every day. And the good news for us that is suggested in those words, for Jesus' name had become known, is the same good news that Paul elaborates on in one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It comes from his letter to the Romans, a family of faith not all that different from yours. It was a gathering of believers who had come from all over the empire and found themselves at the table of the Lord in a city abounding in power and wealth, but also in equity and iniquity. Some in that gathering were rich, some were poor, some were recognized in broader society as leaders, as successes. Others were used, abused, and overlooked. Yet they had all been gathered by something beyond themselves and in opposition to the way things normally worked in their society and in the world. And in his love letter to this church in Rome, Paul wrote, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Where Paul mentions that we are more than conquerors, I don't believe that he was saying that we would be able to out-Herod Herod or out-Herodias Herodias or out-oppress the oppressor or out-colonize the colonizer. I don't think he was making a claim that somehow a short, skinny Chinese guy like me would miraculously find myself with the awesome physical strength to go toe-to-toe or fist-to-fist in a boxing ring. I don't imagine that he was asserting that the good and faithful people of your congregation would win over Austin in any kind of earthly battle. No. I think he was saying that there was a a way better than worldly conquest. In a culture that was bellicose, that believed in brute force and scheming, Paul was suggesting that there was another means to a better end, that there was something beyond us, beyond present-day prestige, beyond weaponry and war, beyond royalty and privilege, beyond human power and political might. And that something was and is the love of God, the love that was embodied and fleshed, incarnated as Jesus's name became known. Where is the good news? In that love. In the love that makes Herod and Herodias and a stunning dance rewarded with a gruesome head on a platter seem like a cosmic footnote. In the love that can sometimes feel unattainable, yes, and even distant, But that's because we find ourselves in our stories, much as the disciples of John the Baptist found themselves in theirs, in its midst, longing for resolution, tinged with grief, burying the dead, hoping for resurrection. Just as we find ourselves in the midst of a story in Mark's gospel, it's not the beginning and it's not the end. We still find ourselves in the midst of a story in our lives now. You are a work in progress. We are slow, steady works in progress. The church is a painstaking, sometimes painful work in progress. The world is a weary and tiresome, beautiful and remarkable work in progress. If there were not some glimmer of hope in your heart that all these things are being made new and that God would somehow redeem all this, would you even be here today? If there were not some yearning in your soul for something beyond us, something beyond this, would you even be listening to this sermon? The love embodied and fleshed and incarnated in Jesus, the love that helped Jesus' name become known, is the same love that we long for, that we cry out for, that we pray for, that we need now. It's the love that has gathered you here. It's the love that you are called to proclaim. There might be moments when you feel torn just as Herod did, compelled by something seemingly holy yet also moved by worldly pressures. There might be seasons where you feel unsure just as the unnamed observers in this text did, speculating about things you aren't sure of, hoping, wondering. There might be times when you feel grief-stricken just as John's disciples did mourning what has happened and uncertain about what comes next. Vox friends, I've thought of you a lot in the months since I was last with you. I know that change is exhausting. 
I know that uncertainty can have a corrosive effect on your spirits. I also know that you've been through difficult change before. You have made hard decisions as a family of faith, and you've leaned into the life of justice and grace and holy witness and loving companionship. I have witnessed your spirit of courage and solidarity, and I've seen your heart to keep doing this good work. Of course you know, friends, as well as anyone, that there is so much that remains to be done. Every day, every week, every month brings new challenges to each of us individually, as well as to all of us in our life together. To some of you, that might sound like a threat. To others, it might seem like an opportunity. To all of us, I think it's a call. A call to faithfulness, a call to perseverance, and ultimately a call to that divine and ridiculous love. The only thing that will get you through, the only center that will hold, is the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The love that promises more than half a kingdom. The love that restores. The love that resurrects. And the love that was born and lived and died and rose again for you. So where's the good news? It's in that love. It is in the love for which Jesus' name became known. It's in the love in his body and his blood, the love that infuses the bread of life and the cup of blessing. It's in the love that made you, that redeemed you, that surrounds you and blesses you and accompanies you every moment of every day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer, the God who nestles her brood under her gentle wings, and the God who calls each of us by name, one God, the God who loves and the God who is love, now and forevermore. Amen.